I want to say thank you to the Secret Library Podcast Patreons, who are the power behind the scenes that helps to keep the show running. If you'd like to join the club, you can do so at patreon.com slash secret library, get access to solo episodes with me and the chance to submit questions for Q&A episodes every month. This is episode 147 of the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is Martine Fournier-Watson. Her first novel, The Dream Peddler, is out now from Penguin. She is a writer based in the U.S., but was originally raised in Montreal and has studied art history as well as painting and drawing before coming to writing. I loved having Martine on because the experience of writing a first novel and sharing that is one that many of us think about as we're working on writing our first novels. And even if we've written many novels and haven't published one, um, I think this is a process that's really important. And in particular, I was delighted to talk about a really um, complicated and ultimately really enlightening process that Martine went through with her editor um, that changed the, the sort of structure of the book in a way um, and opened up some new possibilities. So I think for anyone who thinks the book is locked in stone, the second you submit it to the publisher, this is a wonderful story of an editor having some ideas that caused um, new options in the plot. And I think in the end, Martine realized it, it was an experience that really enriched her as a writer and has changed how she sees herself in terms of what she can do with her story going forward. So it was really, it was really special to be able to talk about this real nitty gritty behind the scenes experience. And I know that you all will gain from it just like I did. So I'm very happy to introduce Martine Fournier-Watson. Hey, Martine, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. So it's really fun to talk about The Dream Peddler because one of the things I was struck with while reading it was the kind of almost allegorical, more, I, I, it was like I was in this kind of parallel world where these things happened, but yet they were all completely normal to the characters, which is the best use of magical realism, I find. And I wondered how the role or the ability of the dream peddler came to you. And then how did you conceive of him entering this town and kind of spiraling into motion, all of these events that, that unfolded afterward? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, talking about, it's easy for me to sort of, um, relate how the first genesis of the idea came to me. So I'll start with that because, um, I actually kind of ripped off a favorite childhood author of mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know she won't care. She's, True she's confessions. I know. Right. Um, See, I was a big fan of Ellen Montgomery when I was. I was a young... too, and I saw your note to her in the sort of in the oh, was it in the right, acknowledgments. Well, that's it, and, and you also, got the epigraph like, also. That's what I was going to say. I got in a bit of a Twitter fight one time about epigraphs because people love to slam them, but I could not resist uh, using them for this book, and I felt like 
you know, acknowledging that quote from her was really important since, in fact, this was her original idea, even though she never did anything with it. And um, I just felt like that provided a kind of a nice lead in, you know, letting the reader know that um, yes, I to get some it. extent, <laughs> this, this book is like a love letter to her in some ways. I didn't just read those books. I've read them countless times you know I have passages memorized so it's like that um and I think it's important to say which books because everybody's going to go oh Anne of Green Gables which is of Mm -hmm. course amazing but as someone who read both Anne of Green Gables and the Emily of Newman series we're in the Emily world so you're prepared no exactly I'm into it (laughs) me how many people are in love with Anne but don't even know about Emily. Um, Why wouldn't you go there too? It's more books. I'm like, they're right next to her on the shelf in the bookstore. How could you not have known? And they're all nice and thick. They're like big ones. I love it. And exactly. I mean, I do love how the Anne series just goes on and on. There's like eight or nine of them and I, I had them all. But yeah, Emily is just contained in this nice little trilogy. I can remember being given those books for Christmas when I was maybe 13 or so, just at the perfect age, you know, to start reading them. And I've got to confess, I always loved Emily more than Anne. <gasps> Anne was great. She's such a goody goody. And Emily was just kind of, I don't know, I was attracted to how she had this sort of evil streak to her. And so, and also, of course, the fact that she, she took her writing very seriously from a very young age. And I think I was kind of like that too. Anne does end up sort of dabbling in writing, but she's, she's really more of a homemaker and a doctor's wife and that's all great. Um, But yeah, Emily was my girl. So yeah, I, I couldn't, it bothered me so much that when, as Emily ages and she writes her first book, um, I'll just explain it for the listeners out there who don't know anything about her. Um, she writes, she writes, I guess she's in her early twenties somewhere and she in sort of a fever, you know, in a quick three weeks, she writes her first, she's been having success with publishing short stories, but she writes her first novel And then she types it all up and gets it all ready to submit. And she sends it out to maybe three, you know, publishers. This was back in the day when you didn't need an agent. I don't even know if there were literary agents because it's early in the 20th century. And she sends it out and she gets rejected three times. And she's quite a sensitive soul. You know, I, of course, laugh at the idea of being upset over three rejections. But this kind of shakes her confidence So she gives it to an older man who's a a dear friend of hers because he's very worldly and literary and he's read a lot and she trusts his opinion. So she gives it to him and just says, look, you know, I've got this book and I really believe in it, but it's been rejected three times and maybe I'm not seeing it clearly. So I need you to read it and tell me if you think it's any good. And she says, if you do, I'll keep trying to get it published. But if you tell me it's not any good, I'll burn it. Um, she tells so dramatic. Oh, it's so she was all about the drama. That's partly why I loved her. It's just all or nothing with this woman, right? So he takes it away and it is good, but he's secretly in love with her. And I don't think he wants her to have, you know, too much literary success. And this book, writing it took her away from him. You know, he didn't get to see her. She was preoccupied and he's so jealous of it. And he's kind of, he's a little bit warped in case this sounds, you know, in case people don't understand what what on earth is wrong with this character. 
So he comes back to her and he lies and he tells her it's no good and she burns it. Um, And so the book was called All You Ever Really Know About It as the reader is that her title was A Seller of Dreams. And he sort of says something about how it's it's asking too much, you know, of the reader's credulity and it's a modern day fairy tale and nobody will like it and nobody will buy. But that's all, you know. Um, and this just this just irritated me no end that that you never that Ellen Montgomery didn't provide any details or I don't know why this book just I was obsessed with it in my imagination. And I guess I took 20 years, but eventually I just reached a point where, you know what, I decided that I would just write the book for myself because I couldn't bear to think that there was this cool idea for a book floating out there in the universe that, you know, nobody was ever actually going to get to read. I love this so much. I think it's such a wonderful source. And it, it makes me think, as I often do, of that idea that Elizabeth Gilbert shared about an idea being out there. And then if it doesn't get expressed, then it finds another way to, oh, right. to exist that she talked about. I think she talks about it in Big Magic, but she also talks about it in a TED Talk. So we'll link to them for everybody right. to does watch if you want. It does that. Yeah, like it picked you. That book has been waiting. Emma Montgomery didn't finish it. And so it's been sitting around and it was like, nope, nope. I I found my girl. I'm going with Martine. Although, Although I'll be honest. And then I sat down to actually write the thing. And I suddenly had this great respect for her because I was like, yeah, she knew better, you know, than to try to write this. I had no idea what to do with it. All I had was her concept of a stranger coming to town to sell dreams, or at least that was how I conceived of it. I just, it seemed to me from the title, I don't know, it just felt like, well, he must be one of those traveling peddlers, right? He wouldn't just live in one place and and make his livelihood there and sell dreams. I don't know. I just, right from the get-go, I pictured him as this nomadic kind of character. Um, so yeah, I guess that leads into the other part of your question, which was how did I kind of figure out who he was going to be? And I don't know if I'll be able to articulate it very well because he just kind of grew from that original little kernel of an idea into a whole person as I went along. Um, I'll just be open about this now. I'm a pantser. I don't plot anything. Um, I like a self-confessed pantser. I think pantsers just got to be proud pantsers. Yes, I agree. Once again, it's like the epigraph thing. When I see discussions out there on social media about plotting versus pantsing, I feel like the pantsers kind of get the short end of the stick. Nobody, everyone thinks it's foolish, you know, um, and I get that, you know, if, if you're a plotter, I, I don't think you could ever imagine how a person could take that kind of risk, first of all, you know, to, uh, to sit down and just sort of blithely, you know, start clacking away or writing in your, in your notebook and just assuming that everything will somehow work itself out. But I, I can't seem to do it any other way because for me, I guess writing an entire book, what I love about it is the writing as a process of discovery. Um, I'm just not, I can't get excited about writing to a plot that I've already pretty much figured out from beginning to end. I always have a vague idea where the story is going. 
Um, so I kind of in my mind, when I started the dream peddler, I thought, well, you know, he's a stranger, he's an interloper and I can imagine, I mean, we can't just have people buying dreams and everything is wonderful and la di da. There has to be a story here. So yeah, there's gotta be a dark side. There has to be a plot. Yeah. So something will have to go wrong. You know, there has to be problems have to arise from people buying dreams and indulging in this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I sort of knew that it's in some way, somehow the town would turn against him. But that was all I had to go on. Um, he sort of he showed up and I instinctively I don't know how because sometimes ideas just come to you. But I knew that that I would have a, a female protagonist, you know, to kind of go with him or be his foil or, or be his friend. And so, um, Evie Dawson came to me and I just, I decided that her son had gone missing. Um, it, it just felt like there needed to be some kind of coincidence of timing there. And I didn't know what would come of that. I just, a lot of my writing process is a kind of coming up with characters and then sowing little seeds I spend all my opening chapters just kind of planting stuff. And then I write along. And as I get towards the end of the book, I get to see which seeds have come up, you know, and what kind of flowers or plants they've turned into. And so far, this method seems to work. Okay. Which may just be blind luck. But that no. was that was how I did it. I love that. Actually, as you were talking about blotters and pantsers, I was thinking in my head, I don't think I've ever said this out loud before, but I think I'm a plantser. I'm sure. Like, a I little like, of both. Yeah, I, I like, but I'm like, maybe it's the plants come up. But it was like, I, I like to have some key moments, but I don't necessarily know perfectly how they connect. But I think, right. I think what you've done in the, I think in, in terms of being a, a pantser, I think sometimes it comes through in the writing in a positive way in that I won't spoil it by saying for everybody what does happen, but with mm. the plot, with the sun disappearing, I really had no idea which way that was going to go. And I think sometimes when I have an idea in mind about where a piece of writing is going to go, I kind of mm -hmm. forecast it in even the word oh, right. choices. Like if you know, it's going to go in a dark direction, you might use really dark words and not realize that you're kind of telling everybody ahead of time, like this is going to go dark, or you kind of That's keep it in a true. different direction and are like, Oh, yeah, sure. It's obviously going to be fine by the way they're, you know, this is being written retrospectively. And it's clear that they're looking back on something that's now fine. It's yeah, I think we don't realize it. But I think that not knowing from the beginning can make a really rich experience for the reader. That's a, a wonderful way of looking at it. Although, <laughs> I mean, I have to confess, it's funny that you should say that because I, yeah, the way the book is structured now, you, the prologue, another thing that people love to diss, but I, you know, when I like something, I really cling to it. So yes, there is a, a very short prologue to this book and it is, it is Ben, Evie's son waking up, um, and just leaving the house on an impulse. And we don't, we don't see what happened to him, but yeah, the, you do get to find out near the end of the book, but it's so funny. You should say that because my original idea was that was one scene 
the first part and then the little echo part two that comes right near the end, they were all one scene. Oh, and I, and I know, right. I'm sort of spoiling your theory here, but I, I had written it all out and I wanted the reader to know. And then it became the tension from him going missing at the outset. Well, it's a very, this is another thing about the book is it, it's also a very old fashioned narrator. You know, there's this kind of third person omniscient narrator going on, which I thought, even though it's not a very popular way of storytelling today, it, it just fits so perfectly with what I was trying to do because I want the reader to feel sort of like they're being told a story. You know, their grandma by the fire is is telling you this fairy tale. So the narrator is sometimes quite heavily present in the book. And so I gave I gave the reader information through that narrator that the characters did not have. Um, well, I think it's perfect if it's written by Emily of New Moon. Then of course it would be written that way. I mean, she didn't know about like first person present narrators. I mean, she wouldn't is, even know that, that existed. Is a then really good point. Yeah, I didn't realize at the time that that was another thing I had done was kind of immerse myself in the time that Ellen Montgomery too was writing in the times in which she tended to set her stories, which was either very late 19th or early 20th. Um, it just came naturally to me, obviously to kind of echo that and set my book right around the same time. So you're right. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have had any notion of that. So initially that scene was all there and the tension for the reader was supposed to come from being forced to watch these characters not know the outcome. Mm. Uh, kind of the way Celeste Ng opens, um, is it Everything I Never Told You, where she says, oh, Lydia's already dead. It, it just, you know, it just opens like, by the way, reader, you know, <laughs> she's already gone. And my, but my characters don't know, just creates um, kind of a different experience for readers going into a book like that. But I had some early advice, you know, which was pretty much, why don't you try not letting the reader know how this ends up? Because that it will take them on the same journey as the characters, which can be a very powerful way of telling a story. And I thought that that was good advice that made perfect sense to me. And I, I had expected, you know, if I had any interest from agents or what have you, that I would, this choice would be questioned and it was, so I wasn't surprised. So that was how we ended up that way. That's fascinating. I mean, yeah, I think my argument kind of ignores the concept of revision and, and acts as if <laughs> so you sit down and, do and just write it in a stream with no revision, which is, you know, of course, impossible. And um, I don't know anyone who's ever done that. So yeah, we have to we have to take into account that you might yeah. make different choices in the second draft. <laughs> Yeah, not since Lucy Maud's day. Yeah, I sometimes wonder. I suspect she didn't have to do quite as much revision as I do. But yeah, and again, I wonder I about those who wrote, like Dickens writing in installments, you know, and they all just got Please. pinned together in a book later. Exactly. And paid by the word. Amazing. Oh, that's great for me. Oh. I tend to be very verbose, right? And then I have to prune everything back. It's brutal. If only I could just get paid extra for all those unneeded words. I know, and they're left on the cutting floor. Poor things. I know. So I'm, I'm interested in sort of the ways that you address 
some really interesting topics. Um, I, I think that there's an element in this that feels incredibly contemporary, even though the narrator is, as you say, um, an omniscient third person narrator, <laughs> which we don't see as much of at the moment. But yet, mm -hmm. There is this kind of town, there is this judgment, there is kind of taboo behavior, there is people exploring fantasy that they have through dreams. And there's an element of, you know, consensual behavior, basically, that comes up with um, one of the girls in the town. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's fascinating to look at the ways you can explore themes that are kind of in the news all the time right now, but in a way that feels completely different. So I'm wondering how it felt. Obviously, you didn't start this like, hey, me too moment. Like this has been haunting <laughs> you for, for 20 years, you know, but it's amazing how sort of what's happening in the world and what's been cooking in our unconscious can come together and create something that that furthers the conversation. So I'm just wondering how that felt to be writing about this now versus when you first thought about it. Oh, that's another great question because also that the time frame, um, our landscape has changed so much since I first sat down, you know, and wrote those first words and that opening scene that it's, it's, um, it's a lot to take in. I was sort of, how do I put this? like an innocent, you know, like a completely unschooled, um, because I, I don't have an MFA. Um, I've been writing for a long time and I've, you know, I did have practice submitting short stories to, to journals and stuff like this. I guess I was doing that around like the, in the late 1990s and, and early 2000s. But apart from, I mean, I do have a master's in art history, so I do, I did have some knowledge of, you know, critical thinking and, and literary theory because it, well, art historical theory and literary theory that there's a lot of crossover between the two, but just all this to say, I just kind of sat down to write this book, having no knowledge of issues like, you know, representation in literature and, what it means to to tell someone else's story or as you say like what does it mean to have kind of a, a me too moment or a, a streak of feminism running through your book I was sort of blissfully not ignorant but I just wasn't consciously thinking about these things when I first wrote it which was I mean it was good in some ways because I was just free to just write whatever came to mind. And I wasn't second guessing my ideas, but then it's very strange to do all that and kind of come to the book later with a new lens because, you know, what year was it when I started writing it? Maybe 2012 or 2013. Um, it's such a long process. Um, I can remember, I think it, I started to query this book right at the start of 2015, maybe. Hmm. Um, you know, and so, and the, the man, things were heating up and this was, I was living outside Philadelphia at the time. And it was just also interesting because my husband and I were both Canadian, but we had been living here so long. Um, I first emigrated basically at the start of 2003. So it was time to, you know, our, we had a, a green card that we'd had for 10 years and it came time to renew it. And it just, it didn't really make any sense. You know, we were never going back to Canada. We could see that. 
So we became American citizens right at this time too, which was so funny because that, that big election, the 2016 election was one that I was able to participate in, which is so, so weird. I'm sorry. I'm kind of going off on a no, huge this is, this is great. <laughs> Okay. So yeah, this is my life by Martine Fournier Watson. Um, <laughs> so, and there I am querying this book and, um, yeah. So I eventually, now it took me a year and a half, which is just a whole separate story, but eventually I had moved, we left the Philadelphia area and we came back to Michigan, which has kind of always been our home base. And I eventually signed, um, with an agent, Bridget Smith, and she, she didn't ask for too many changes. Um, as far as, you know, just the basic text of the book, the editing with her was, was quite light. She was, was very happy with it the way that it was. Um, I think we might've added a couple of scenes and then it went on submission. And when it got to my editor at Penguin, that was when, everything sort of, I was sort of starting to look at all the choices I'd made with a different lens. It just hadn't, you know, I hadn't even been thinking about that. I had been writing something new, obviously, because you have to do something to occupy yourself while you're querying because it's horrible. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so that was when I sort of started to see just little things like Shannon, my editor. Um, so she bought the book and then she sort of said to me, is everyone in this town white? <laughs> like, um, and it, this was something, you know, that in my innocence, I had never, I mean, I didn't think about it consciously. It's just that I knew if I'm white, you know, so that I... I would conceive of the characters as, yes, predominantly being white, but also just knowing that it was a, a small town, fairly isolated a long time ago. No, I wasn't picturing it, right, have, being cosmopolitan or having lots of different cultures and stuff like this. So in, to a certain extent, I didn't look at any of those choices with a contemporary eye until it came time to publish, which I guess, you know, makes sense. And same thing with, with all the other themes that kind of go through it. I wasn't, I didn't, as, as we were saying, I didn't plan any of that out. And it was so funny because in some ways when I realized what I had written, when I got to the end, I thought, boy, I didn't know I was being so ambitious with these deep, heavy themes that I had put in here, you know, like how do we process loss and, and how do we grieve and what does it mean to be a scapegoat and all these sort of very heavy handed, you know, ideas. I think it's good actually that I was sort of totally unaware what I was taking on because I didn't, I don't know if I did them justice, you know, and I'm glad that I wasn't too self-conscious about it. So that was how we came to that. And there was, I can't say too much about it, but yeah, that, that storyline that we don't really want to give away because spoilers, um, actually had to rewrite it. Mm. Um, in order to have, yeah, the good people at Penguin be okay with the storyline. As dark as it is, it was worse. <laughs> it really? Was, yeah, it was worse. Um, and oh, God, I, I'm dying I to ask about it, but I won't spoil it for I everybody. I can't tell people. You just call me privately on the okay. phone later. Okay. I'll tell you. Yeah, Great. It, it was bad. And she just sort of said, you know, I completely get where you're coming from but we just can't do this to the readers. She said, I think we're going to lose too many readers. Could you possibly 
rethink it. And okay, that was that's a really interesting thing, though. Mm-hmm. How do you think? Do you think that 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 and this is like asking you to imagine what someone else would say at a different time. So in some case, I, I'm aware this is an unfair question. But do okay. you think that had something to do with the time in which the book was coming out? Or do you think that question would have stood no matter what the time period was when it was being published? I mean, obviously, within your oh. adult life, not within multiple right. centuries considering yeah because it's true and oh yeah this was the the one part of the story that i kind of forgot to say not that it's really important but as soon as the book sold too i had both kind of i'm i wasn't on twitter i'm just not really you know a big social media gal and both the agent and editor sort of ganged up on me and said you know you really have to be on Twitter. <laughs> you just, it's a job requirement. So trust us, you'll love it, but get on there and start making some friends. And so I did that. And this was how that really opened my eyes to a lot of the issues, you know, in the literary world today that I just hadn't, you know, sitting in my ivory tower, writing my little story, I'll be honest, I hadn't given enough thought to it. And I, I hadn't given any thought to um, representation in my book. And and I mean, in part, I could get away with that, of course, because of the very old fashioned setting and time frame. but it's not something that one should ever cast aside or forget about. Right. When, when we're writing in this day and age, knowing what I know about the plot as I had it, I don't, I don't think it would have mattered. Um, yeah, maybe she, maybe the general feeling was that yes, um, the scrutiny might be intensified by, the particular times that we're living in. And I mean, so be it. That's great. I, I'm a huge fan of the Me Too movement. Um, like many women, I think I'm just about to turn 44. And I look back on my life and with, I don't know, the older I get, the angrier I get, you know, is that how the saying goes? I mean, I just, so much of what I accepted about living as a woman on this planet and about male behavior toward me was just always so unacceptable. It makes me really angry now looking back that I didn't see that. But for this particular book, I'm sure the question would have come up, um, because it was, it was quite disturbing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think as publishers and as people in business and also just people who want to be good people, you know, and not be, um, offensive. Um, yeah, I certainly would not have wanted to cause pain to anyone, put it that way, unnecessarily, um, through the plot line in the book that they were concerned with. Mm. So we did, I mean, it was, it was horribly upsetting. I won't try to sort of sugarcoat it because I, I didn't see it coming. I sort of, we had contracts in place and my editor was kind of like, I really think you need to, rewrite this whole part of the plot. Um, I, you know, I emailed my agent just freaking out. <laughs> and um, What do I do? Like, what do I do if I can't do it? It wasn't even so much that I was stubborn and adamantly refusing. It was more like I wasn't sure I could make the book work. Um, unbeknownst to me, you know, like I said, I just sort of blissfully sowed all these little plot seeds and waited to see if I would have anything coherent, you know, that worked when I got to the end. And to my surprise, it seemed like, yes, each character sort of fit in like a piece of the puzzle and they all had their role to play and all the interconnections ended up mattering and everything sort of came out just as I'd hoped. We get to the end, 
the dream peddlers, the bad guy, that's it. We're done. Um, and I didn't know, I, I was really afraid to start pulling at these threads, right. That, that I had woven because I was envisioning like, okay, we're pulling one thread and the whole sweater unravels. I'm they're So everything is so, um, delicately intertwined that I, I won't be able to do this. I, it was more about, I was just afraid I, this is the first book to don't forget. So I didn't know if I had the skill as a writer to handle what she was asking me to do. So my agent kind of, you know, talked me down off the ledge cause that's what they're, they're there for. And she said, you can, she said, you know, push back. Nothing is set in stone. It, you know, she said, it's not likely that this is a deal breaker because nobody alerted me to this either. But I just, so I did. And I just got the feedback that, no, you know, we really need you to like, take your time, do what you got to do, but we really need you to see if you can come up with an alternative. So I went away, you know, and my, my little brain, you know, was working on the problem. And I mean, luckily I know the book so well. I mean, this is the only position of advantage, I guess, that you have as an author is that you, nobody knows your characters and what you're trying to say the way that you do. So with enough time, I was able to come up with sort of a different solution that kept what I was worried about was my editor would have been fine with me just rewriting like the whole second half of the book. You know what I mean? But I... I would have, that would have broken my heart. Um, there were just a lot of things that happened in this book that really mattered to me in terms of the story I was trying to tell and the emotional impact that I felt they would have on the reader. And she could see all that. She agreed with all that. So she just sent me on my way to see if I wanted to come up with a substitution that would not, that would leave, like, if you could miraculously just pull the one thread and then weave a different color back in there without disturbing the rest of what you've made. So I can't remember how long it took. It felt like ages, but it was probably only a week. I mean, I was thinking about it constantly. Yeah, eventually I, I came up with this sort of eureka, woohoo, I think I've got it, you know, an alternative um, to the story. A week is miraculous. Well, I don't, you know, again, in the interest of total honesty, it was summer break, but I don't have a day job. So when I speak of my timeline, I want people to know that um, because I'm able to, yeah, pull off ridiculous things that I wouldn't expect most most writers to be able to primarily because they don't they don't have the vast quantities of free time that I do. I was a stay-at-home mother for many years. Um, just as I said, moving around, um, we moved around quite a bit for my husband's job. And so I was the caretaker, um, which was hard, but the, the upside of that is when my, once my kids were both in school full time, I suddenly, even with all that's required to, you know, to keep a house running and keep our lives going, I still had plenty of free time, um, to write my books. And so, yeah. A week, I don't know. I might be exaggerating, but my brain was constantly working. Yeah, I was in a bit of a panic. I can imagine. So yeah, that was that was how that happened. And did you feel in the end that that what you came up with made it that that it worked like it was good enough or that it added something to the story? Like how do you feel about what you ultimately ended up with? Yeah, I love that question. And, I, you know, it's it's what people, writer friends often ask me. Um, did you feel like you lost something? 
Which is, you know, that to me, that's the most valid question about it because writers are often asked to revamp their books in a, a huge way. And I almost, it's almost always a positive, I think, as long as you, you have to take a little time, I guess, as a writer, when you're asked to do something like that and just study your own gut because it is your book at the end of the day and it is your name going on it, not your editor's. Um, I was really happy with, with the way that it worked out. And I definitely was able to tell my friend, no, I didn't feel like I lost anything. In fact, there were, there was a little with my original plot line, there was a little bit of awkwardness. You know, there was one scene in there that I was never really comfortable with. It was a little far fetched or I'm not sure how else to describe it, but, and, and rewriting it, you know, I was able to, to remove that, that little bit of the book that always kind of bothered me that I didn't think was up to snuff. And so it was just different. Um, I never really saw the necessity for it the way my editor and apparently every other person at Penguin who laid eyes on it all agreed, but I was okay with doing it. And even more than, um, I hope I can say this right. More than how things ended up for this particular book, and I am satisfied with what the book has become. I'm not, I, I don't know if better is the right word, but the book was definitely, I was, it's still just as good and I, in my view. And I was able to maintain all those little bits of plot that, that really mattered to me. So I was fine with it going forward. Um, but what I really loved about it was what it did for me as a writer, putting my own, the one book aside, I hope that my whole career won't be this one book. Right. And to be able to get through that process to really dive into my book and start thinking about the different threads and, um, thinking about the real construction of my plot and how to take it apart and put it back together, how to tinker with it. It's kind of like how, you know, if you're a reader, I mean, anybody can just get in their car and drive it. None of us really know, you know, how our cars work when you go down. We don't, I can't, you know, you don't want me going under my hood and messing with that engine. But as the architect of the car, you know, as the writer, this was such a valuable experience for me that I'll be honest, yeah, I'm so glad to have done it and to have been asked to do it and all the sweat and tears and blood, that, that was all worth it because I felt like, wow, this editor, she really forced me to stretch and grow. And that alone, you know, um, regardless of how things end up going for this particular book, that made it all worth it. And the other thing that I had that I knew that I could feel instinctively was if she were right, you know, supposing I pushed back against this change and just insisted, no, I cannot, you know, this plot as it is, is so important to me that I'm not going to back down. Let's say that they said they backed off and said, fine, or we found another publisher, whatever, who would agree to those terms. If I put it out in the world in that condition and it didn't do well. I, I mean, that can happen to any book, but I knew I would always wonder, oh God, you know, what if she was right? And what if, what if, what, what if I had only agreed to not be so stubborn and to just at least make the best faith effort that I could to make those changes? I really didn't want to have to live through that. I felt like the better choice for me, if I could do it at all, if I could wrap my mind around it would be to do as she asked, because she is 
the expert, you know, they are the ones publishing the book. They have a lot of experience with this and I had none. Um, I didn't want to have to play the what if game. I figured if I make the change and the book doesn't do well, it, it won't be because of the change that much. I knew, you know, nobody else knows what the book originally was. So I, I was dead certain that that would not affect it. So I just, I had to say yes, if you know what I mean. I do. I love that because I think, I think something that could be really um, helpful is like, I love this image of kind of taking apart your car or taking apart a car engine and then being able to interact with it completely differently in the future. And that if you're able to have that experience with your writing or with a story, then the relationship you have to writing stories in the future would be completely different. And the other thought is that I think that if anyone is in this situation, you have nothing to lose by trying. Like if you spent those two weeks and you pulled the thread out, obviously you save a previous draft. So you, yeah. um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's like you could try this whole thing and write this whole ending and say, I don't think it's better. Do what do you think? And you can put it back to them and say, you know, do you, th is this what you meant? And do you really think it works as well? I mean, I think you have nothing to lose right. by trying and coming up with the second option. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, in my panicked state, I'm not sure I thought of it that way at the time, but yeah, you're oh, of absolutely course not. Of course not. You're like, yeah. Oh my God, what does this mean? I mean, of course. Oh, I felt like, Oh man, I was like, Oh no, I have to do this. Yeah. What will I do? You know, dare I send my agent, you know, back to the drawing board, you know, yeah. going out with the story again. What a conundrum. And, and how, but how fascinating. And I think, I mean, like you said, what if, and I also think that, I mean, fiction is based on what if in the first place, like what if we had a copy of that manuscript that Emily wrote, what would it say? You know, that's where the book came from in the first place. So I think that process doesn't stop. Um, I think just because the book has been written, there's still, even now it's like, what if someone reads it and it changes everything for them? We don't know yet, but that's amazing that that's possible. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, of course, it's just, yeah, the what if question every time you make any decision as a writer, it's so interesting. It's like those stories about the infinite parallel universes, right? When you're writing a book, it only goes a particular way because you made a choice. But there was always, yeah, there was always an infinite number of ways you could have told your story. So it's interesting. I know there's like 50 versions of your book in various parallel universes hovering everywhere. There's a, there's a universe where you didn't change it. There's all of these <laughs> things going on. It would be really exactly. cool if we could watch just, them all, like, you know, a series on Netflix, like what if, okay, well, let's watch the last week. If I didn't do that thing, what would that mean? It would be so just, satisfying, but probably really horrible for procrastination purposes. <laughs> oh yeah. Procrastination. That's the one reason why I should never have gotten on Twitter. <laughs> You're not the only one who said this. Everybody, I know. And everybody, I'm like, are you sure that this was the right thing? I know you guys really wanted me to be on there, but I feel like my productivity just tanked from that, that one, that one decision. Yeah. It's like join the hive mind um, that it is amazing. Well, I'm, I'm so grateful we had a chance to talk about this book and the, and especially the behind the scenes of it, because it, it reads like this really lovely kind of allegory. And to know that all of this was happening behind the scenes, I think, 
I think will add so much to people's experience reading it. So thank you for telling us um, about your process. Oh, yeah, it's my great pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.